right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 123. Jason Lingren is with me. Uh, for those that have followed, you may remember where we started with the 60s to show the kind of programming and engineering efforts that go into a thing. We basically covered the period of time where folk music was getting plugged into electric guitars and becoming what is known as rock and roll. Well, we're going to take that six of the 60s and we're going to flip it to become the nine of the 90s. And we're going to cover the outcome of all these things that began seemingly in the 60s to some degree, or at least the particular things that we're going to look at. Anyhow, uh, next week we're going to have an episode that is wholly driven by submissions from subscribers. We'll cover that more. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lindgren into episode 123 and take a look at the 90s, man, the capstone decade in many ways. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 123. Jason Lindgren is with me today, as usual, and we're going to be doing a follow-up to our The 80s show, and we're going to demonstrate what went down in the 90s. Uh, welcome, Jason. Good morning from lovely Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah, I think you got it better than we do, man. It's pretty wet and sticky up here. Uh, what do we have to cover in the intro, Jason? I think you just did one interview this past week. Uh, that's right. I went on TFR or Truth Frequency Radio with Billy Ray Valentine. Uh, I thought I was only going on for 10 minutes. I did a full hour. Um, that's posting all over the place on Twitter now. We ended up talking. Uh, just a random conversation came about censorship. Um, and that's what we covered. And it's actually blowing up. I'm seeing a lot of traffic around that one hour. Uh, you can find it on my Twitter. You can find it on Podbean. You can find it on Truth Frequency Radio or TFR with Billy Ray Valentine. Um, also, we should mention next episode, 124, will be driven once again by subscriber-submitted questions and topics. Uh, we've actually set up a special email address for that, which we will announce in the second hour. And just to cut to the chase, if you don't submit to that email, we ain't collecting the questions. Last time, so many questions got put in so many places, it was like a full-time gig trying to catch up. Before we get into this, you know, we, we basically, just to set, set the table for people here, long time ago, we did a show on the 60s and the, the kind of social programming that came with the onset of rock and roll music out of folk music. In other words, basically when guitars went electric. Um, and we showed outright just the overwhelming societal change that came on that. We haven't talked a lot about the 70s, but then we did a full show on the 80s. To refresh everyone's memory, the way I view the 80s is a change point. Before the 80s, everything's going to be one way, kind of old-timey for most people's minds at this point. And then technology and any number of things, the corporatization of America, just everything hits in that massive party we call the 80s in the United States. Now we're going to cover what came next, and that was the 90s. And I don't know how you view it, Jason, but... To me, the 90s is like a completion. Um, that's what it feels like to me. It's like all these things that have been perking up since the 60s. Um, when the 90s hit, man, uh, the United States of America is going to be a different place. It's never going to be on the same footing it once was. Well, I have a very dual nature, the way I look at the 90s, because I graduated high school in 1991, so my coming of age all through my 20s, that was the 90s. Now, looking back from a different perspective, knowing what I know now, mercy, the things I can see that were going on. But it's very interesting because I have a firsthand account of a lot of the things in the, the culture and how it went down. So these are going to be interesting topics to go through. 
Right. At one point, we're going to focus on Interscope Records. It's kind of quite a telling story. Um, we can all remember that in the 80s, technology comes to be. We get CDs, we get computers for the first time, we get all these things. In the 90s, the internet comes along. And what it does to the music industry is basically, we are told, it pulls the rug out from under them. The way the music industry had run all the way back to the 60s with record companies, suddenly um, there's file sharing and that's all ruined. But we're going to focus a bit here and there on Interscope scope records because for some reason these non-technical dudes walked straight over to apple and were recently bought out for billions of dollars for a thing that apparently doesn't seem like it has much value but we'll get there go ahead jason so let's start off the decade right on april 24th 1990 the space shuttle discovery successfully launched the hubble space telescope into its planned orbit during the sts-31 mission it had an original proposed cost estimate of about $400 million. The project cost about $4.7 billion by the time of its launch. Hubble's cumulative costs were estimated to be about $10 billion by 2010, 20 years after its launch. So, I mean, all I can say about this here, I'll read the first sentence, and I'll, but I'll read it correctly. On April 24, 1990, the Space Shuttle Discovery was successfully, successfully launched the Hubble Space Telescope into the minds of the world. Um, that's what I'll say about that. And what else do you got to say about the Hubble Space Telescope? Because that was a big deal, once they got it working right, of course. Right. So, you know, we're told that they couldn't tell the difference between, I forget what it was, the metric system and inches or something. So it gets up there and it can't see. Oh, my God, Hubble needs glasses. So we're going to send astronauts up there uh, to put some glasses and fix the problem in outer space, which they do. Amazing, man. They do it. And Hubble can see and all these incredible Fantastic images start coming back. Uh, you can refer back to episodes where we have addressed um, the Hubble Space Telescope. As a matter of fact, there is an airplane called SOFIA, which has nearly an identical optical system that is stated to be the Hubble Space Telescope. And we went down that path before, stating that in our view, every image you've ever seen um, that is claimed to be Hubble was either shot by SOFIA or some ground-based telescope. Not only that, anyone in the modern digital era can take telescopic images and then develop them with digital tools uh, to be identical to anything you're ever going to see uh, from the supposed Hubble. And of course, that whole affair where it needed a different lens on the front to make it focus just really stirred up attention for it, didn't it? And it took a little while so that by the time it did start releasing images, everybody was hungry for them. Right. It's hard to imagine that you're going to spend hundreds of millions and then basically billions, uh, as they state, by the end. But the engineers could not tell the difference between the met I think, if I've got this right, it was they confused the metric system with uh, inches, the, the U.S. system of measure, which is why the vision was not correct for the Hubble, why the Hubble needed glasses, and I quote, because those were the buzzwords. But later on, Jason, the same thing happens again with, I think it was Bush the Jr. Um, I didn't realize we we're going to go down this road so heavily, but Bush the Jr. at one point announces, hey man, it's too dangerous for astronauts to go up there. We're going to decommission the Hubble Space Telescope and a worldwide outcry from universities and everywhere else uh, erupts because people are saying, what the hell, man? What are you going to take our space telescope away? So this kind of mass hysteria around the, the, the Hubble Space Telescope happened more than once if we look back. Which, again, just stirs up interest in whatever it is it might be doing. 
hey, man, look at the left hand, but don't pay any attention to the right hand. You don't need to know what it's doing. Interestingly enough, Jason, the Hubble Space Telescope actually had a huge bearing on where I ended up going with my telescope work. All the way back in the 90s, I was getting all the magazines, uh, telescopic magazines, you know, astronomy magazines, showing me all these incredible pictures um, from that. And that's when I started getting into, at the time, with film, film cameras only, no digital yet, um, taking pictures, um, doing astrophotography, and... To put this into context for people, you get to a point where you can recognize the night skies. Like, if you see a picture of the Orion Nebula um, below the three stars in Orion, I think it's M42, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you see a picture, you know what you're looking at. You see the Pleiades, it's got a blue reflection nebula when photographed with an open shutter. So I started going down this road, and I quickly began to realize that I couldn't replicate anywhere near what we were being shown from the Hubble Space Telescope. And this is what what got me questioning by the end of the 90s what was actually going on here. So I'll just give that backstory. And as a matter of fact, recently at a, at a telescope shop, when I got the last telescope that I have, my, my Celestron 11 plus inch telescope, uh, Schmidt Cascreen telescope, there's all these pictures on the walls that the guys that work there have shot. And I saw a picture of the Pleiades with that beautiful blue reflection nebula in front of it, but it was like no image of the Pleiades I'd ever seen. And it looked as good, if not nicer, than anything you've ever seen from the Hubble, supposed Hubble. And I talked to the guy. He was actually the guy selling me the scope um, that had taken the picture. And he told me, yeah, I worked for about six months on that image. And I said, well, I was wondering, because I recognize it as the Pleiades, but it's like no Pleiades image I've ever seen. And this goes to tell the tale about the era of digital imaging and what's actually going on here. So I'm curious, what's the difference between taking a picture with film and taking a picture digitally as far as telescopes are concerned. And how, in the 90s, or this thing would have been made in the 80s, really, how did they uh, take pictures and get them back to Earth if it's supposed to be in space? <laughs> well, it's the same as anything in space, right? We're told it gets transmitted back. Um, the, 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 let me get to the film thing in a second. The irony of it is most people who are in scientific fields who are going to use the Hubble, they basically get on a computer, don't they? And they're fed data. That's what they get from the Hubble. So it's just a data stream into these places. But to get back to the film idea, back before we had digital images, of course, you had a camera with film. The film has to be developed. You have to buy film. It's not cheap. But what you have to do is open up. You have to track perfectly, first of all. You have to get what's called a polar alignment. So you align to the North Star. Um, and so your scope is tracking through the sky, but twisting as the sky apparently rotates from our point of view. But it has to track exactly. It, so we used to do things like we'd open up the shutter and we'd have an eyepiece with an X in it. And if we could find a good star, we would try to keep the star exactly in the X. If it, if it wandered at all, you would get streaks in the images. Um, it was a lot more work back in, in the film days than it is now because you can click as many digital images as you want. It's much easier to stack them. And of course, we've all got Photoshop. And what you can do in Photoshop is nothing short of breathtaking with uh, astronomical imagery. So I'm just trying to get this clear. Is the Hubble Space Telescope taking digital images? And were they taking digital images back in the beginning of its life? And to, something to transmit back? Well, it had to be, right? Because nobody's going up to, to collect the film, right? Nobody's going up to reload more film into the Hubble Space Telescope. That has to be digital. Well, this is my point. How did it work? <laughs> 
Well, there it is. Um, before before any of us are going to be able to recognize digital in that way, it is doing digital, isn't it? Right. And uh, I might guess I'll just have to look that up because I really don't know how that would have worked. How many megapixels is the Hubble Space Telescope? You know, in the in the episode, oh, shoot, it's been it's way back. It's like between, around episode fifteen on Crow Triple Seven Radio. We do an episode when I was by myself. I have a guest on that talks about the Sophia and the Hubble. Um, and like you, I would have to go look it up to know the the particular details of all that. But we cover it ad nauseum in that show, and we demonstrate to my satisfaction that every image you've ever seen uh, is from the Sophia or even a ground based telescope. So after Hubble, we're going to do August 2nd, 1990, running through to February 20th, 1991, the first Gulf War, or Operation Desert Shield. Of course, this wasn't a war at all, like any of them that they call wars, because, as we've discussed, there were no formal declarations of war for the United States after World War II. This one takes place in the Middle East, officially by a United Nations authorized coalition force from 34 nations, which was, of course, led by the United States, as well as the United Kingdom, against the sovereign nation of Iraq. So this is when I served in the United States Marine Corps. I served during this theater of war and had many friends, although I was shipping off to this. This thing ended so quickly as to make your head spin. But I had plenty of people from my unit and units around me, um, we were radio operators and other systems within the radio communications field that went off to this. But one thing I remember that was quite telling about this whole thing is as the run-up happened, we were told you had to be 90% combat ready, all your stuff, you know, all your radios, all your Humvees, all your M16s better be up to snuff. You need to be combat ready, and they jacked it up from 80% to 90%. Nobody's going home until all the equipment's up to 90% functionality. And they started bringing in all these reservists, not career Marines, reserve Marines. And while a couple handful here and there stayed while other Marines went off for this theater of war, so many reservists actually went to the theater. And I always thought that was funny. How do you have all these lifetime trained Marines, you know, the best of the best, being replaced with weekend warriors, reservists. And that is the main thing I remember uh, about this particular run, uh, the Gulf War in the theater of war. So calling it a theater of war, did you see anything that made you really question things even back in that day? You know, I had a lot of friends that were there. And um, some of the things that you saw on the cable news were going on. Lots of people surrendering. But there really, per se, wasn't a war in the way people would imagine war. And it, like I said, it ended so quickly. Um, but I'm not making up the term theater of war. Mr. Norman Schwarzkopf, you can look up clips of him right now calling it the theater of war. Um, matter of fact, I don't think there's any war in, in modern memory where you're not going to hear the term theater of war. And words have meaning, don't they? Yeah, that whole thing is definitely suspect. But moving forward a little bit, October 4th, 1990 the launch of the television program, Beverly Hills 90210. The show would run for 10 years and spawn multiple spinoffs. The insane amount of social engineering that is aimed at the youth at the opening of the decade is absolutely staggering. Teenage sex is normalized, and the real-world youth attempt to overcome feelings of insecurity trying to emulate the always perfectly made-up stars of the show. 
Right. So this show is going to be a bit of a milestone because of its popularity. Um, and what it is doing is furthering the social engineering, in my view. Um, I'm not sure what you would add, Jason. And by the way, you'll probably need to cut this. You skipped August 2, the Gulf War. Well, I would say like all of these things, it's all weaponized right from the get-go, pre-planned and ready to manipulate the minds of whomever happens to be dumb enough to watch this stuff. Well, it's a far cry from Leave it to Beaver, isn't it? Um, You're going to have all this sex going on, all this cheating, all this murder, all this intrigue. And of course, um, as we say so often, that's like the frog in boiling water. Once you see a shocking thing, the next time you're exposed to it, it's less shocking. And when you see it week after week after week, pretty soon it's not shocking at all, is it? It becomes the standard and the norm. And in the case of this, uh, with so many television shows, people began to emulate it. And not only that, this particular show for the younger subset of society, much of it, became a bit like Seinfeld, where it was like everyone had to be home to watch this show. Um, It was all that you heard about. It was covered on other info or entertainment channels. But anyhow, yeah, man. So the 1980s, that was the time of the eternal party, wasn't it? Starting with the introduction into mass media of alternative rock and grunge music, everything changed from the 80s and in a very short amount of time. Flannel shirts over t-shirts became the norm, males and females both adopted this look, and the hair got chopped off from the 80s long tresses once again for both sexes. The strong introduction of androgyny into the pop culture grows ever stronger as the 90s progress, with the wearing of wife-beater t-shirts and tank tops and boy pants by Gwen Stefani of the band No Doubt, of Interscope Records, pushing the cross-sexual look on the girls of the time. And of course, we're going to get more into Interscope Records as we go along here. Right. It's it's like night and day. The 80s and the 90s are literally like night and day. In the 80s, everyone is happy. Uh, everyone has been talked into consumption. There's all these bright, bizarre colors that you've never seen before. Electric green, electric blue. They're all kind of electric pastel-y colors. Um, everything is flamboyant. And then we get up to this grunge era. And it's the exact opposite, man. People are wearing tattery old clothes and flannels. Um, and the whole feel of everything becomes very subdued, and the androgyny that really started to be pushed hard in the 80s uh, comes and takes on a different form, but no doubt is in fact one of the bands from Interscope Records, which we will focus on, and just to mark the eras in people's minds, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first big uh, hits from No Doubt is I'm Walking in the Spiderweb, Leave a Message and I'll Call You Back. There it is, the onset of the internet. This is where it's all happening. This is where our world is going to go to a place that seemingly it has not recovered from yet. Maybe it never will. Hard to know. Next, let's have an interesting quote from President George H.W. Bush that was televised on January 16th, 1991. And this has certainly got the rounds going in the years since. This is an historic moment. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order in order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. 
just damn, man, you know, when you look back on it now, and I had remembered as as this speech is occurring on September 11, but I'm sure that you got the date right here, January 16. He said it more than once. The September 11th one was, I believe, a presentation to Congress. Ah, is that what it is? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty sure that we could tie the new world order. But what's really interesting about this whole thing, uh, besides the fact that the president's going to come out and blow this into your face, um, these words don't get said again in public, do they, Jason? Um, it's not like, okay, here he's opened the door, told everyone where we're headed. There's this thing called the new world order that they're trying to make successful and ensuring us it will be, but then the next president doesn't come talk about the New World Order, nor the one after that, nor the one after that. And there are rumors that after he made this speech, uh, there were directions given that saying the words New World Order would not be acceptable. I mean, what can you add here, Jason? Well, Mr. Skull and Bones, I think, just wanted to throw it in our face. And, hey, man, we told you what we're doing. I told you on live TV while I was president of the United States. How much plainer and simpler can it get? Yeah, great. But, that, you know, here's my point. Um, do people have a right to deserve to know where the world is going? So apparently this is said for a reason to inform people. But since 1991, a lot of more human beings have come into the world who have never heard this speech, who are unaware of it. So I would say again, if this is a major goal, how, how come every president isn't saying, okay, this is where we are in the goal? And for that matter, doesn't George H.W. Bush, this will echo back to our political parties episode, doesn't he understand that there might be a Democrat in office next time? Because he's a Republican. Won't the Democrat do the exact opposite of what a Republican does? This statement that you make kind of demonstrates what we showed about political parties. He doesn't give a damn if a Democrat or a Republican or anyone else is coming. He's saying, look, we got a big chance now. We've worked up to this point, and when we are successful, and we will be, by the way, we can reach this new world order. So what does that tell you about the idea of red and blue or Democrat or Republican or anything else? You, you can see in this one quote, it demonstrates the nonsensical nature of what most people buy into. While obviously I can't speak for them, I'm assuming that with their weird karmic laws, that what he did was enough. Uh, you write it on public record and it's up to everyone born in 1995 to go back and you know refresh with the public record all the way back through time. Um, I don't agree with it, Jason. I don't agree with it at all. It's underhanded in, in so many of the ways we see underhandedness brought to bear. And if truly there is a world push for a new world order, then every leader in every capacity that's participating should be talking about it all the time. But that's not what we see. And again, this is nefarious in my view. Well... Everything they do is nefarious, isn't it? Pretty much. But, you know, I guess for the sake of uh, censorship, we have to keep an even keel here, don't we? Also in 1991, the World Wide Web, WWW, also called simply the web, comes to the forefront. People start talking about it for the first time publicly, really. And it's, of course, an information space where documents and other web resources are identified by uniform resource locators, URLs, interlinked by hypertext links, and are accessible via the internet. English scientist Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web in 1989. He wrote the first web browser in 1990 while employed at CERN in Switzerland. The browser was released outside CERN in 1991, first to other research institutions starting in January 91, and to the general public on the internet in August of 91. I was there. I saw the whole thing. I, at that time, had no idea where this would go. It was a new thing, and I got in at the ground level. 
who can forget Netscape, Mosaic, those were some of the browsers. Uh, what's not summed up in this bullet point is there was a fashion or a version of the World Wide Web that had gone through the universities, the EDU uh, moniker for online, and they had these weird browsers which didn't allow anything but text, and they had names like Veronica and Gopher. I remember them all and used them. I really mark, I was in Southern California at the time, and I think I really mark seeing people go online, mostly through AOL at that time, somewhere around 92, 93, up into 94. That's really when it started building steam. Um, but here we are, you know, where's all this developed at CERN, of course. Um, and I would ask, was this a known quantity when they did it? Well, if we look at the history of ARPANET and DARPANET, um, the military precursors to the public versions of the World Wide Web, uh, which were st their stated purpose was to decentralize communications. So to put that in context for the average mind now, when you send an email and you push send, the packets are, the email is broken up into packets and it's sent like a thousand directions. The first packet that finds a delivery path becomes the method of delivery. The idea for the precursors to the World Wide Web, ARPA and DARPA, um, was that this decentralized communication, so if Chicago got blown off the map, which is a bit laughable, um, communications could still get through because it didn't matter. There were a thousand directions uh, that could be used or more, however many, uh, to deliver communications. So there's the backstory of all that, Jason. December 26th, 1991. The Cold War is said to be over, as the USSR dissolves into multiple states, and the great big boogeyman that has been around for decades is no longer going to be the boogeyman, because now we're going to shift over to the Middle East. Well, until we get Mr. Trump, right? Then they're going to re resurrect that boogeyman <laughs> in, a, yeah. in, a different, in a different way. But, I mean, this is all very telling, right? We have the farce that is Chernobyl, at the end of the 80s, if I'm not mistaken, it's near Christmas or something in 89, I'm guessing. Um, I didn't look up the dates. But basically, at the end of the 80s, we have the, Cherno the Chernobyl debacle, um, which for anyone who's followed me, I do not accept for a second. I don't accept that nukes exist in the way they're described. We've done episodes on this. But here we go. Um, the major boogeyman since World War II dissolves overnight. Um, think the world stage is changing there, Jason? You know, I think just a little bit. And it looks like the Chernobyl disaster went down on April 26th, 1986. Yeah, I was really close there. I said 89. Well, com coming towards the, the past the midway, uh, we have the whole Chernobyl nonsense. Anyone can go look up the Anthony Bourdain episodes where, you know, they put on their little x-ray badges and go marching through to find out that all the trees are thriving, all the animals are thriving, everything's thriving. Um... But by the way, if you eat anything there, you'll die of radiation poisoning. Not sure what the trees and animals are eating. Don't trees and animals have water and cells in their body like we do? I don't know. I'm confused, Jason. I'm, I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very confusing, isn't it? Although quite a few of the bands that would later be considered the strongest members of the grunge and alternative rock takeover were formed in the 1980s, they would not reach massive mainstream monotony until after the massive success of the band Nirvana and their album, Nevermind. It was released on September 24th, 1991. And this was the album that really pushed forth the changes that took place, wiping out the last of the hair bands and ensuring everyone that the party of the 1980s really was over.
And not only that, man, I'm going to make some bold statements here. The meaning of words is not lost on me. And what they are doing is demonstrating once again that the old tricks are the best tricks. Who can forget the punk rock era? I was in the middle of that. I was actually in a punk rock band. That's how in the middle of that I was. Um, a friend of mine that was in my band had a girlfriend who ran a record store who got a hold of a bootleg copy of God Save the Queen off Nevermind the Bullocks by the Sex Pistols that launched me and a whole generation into punk rock. But let's look at the words that have meaning. The iconic album from punk rock has to be the Sex Pistols' Nevermind the Bullocks. The iconic album from Nirvana, which is just almost like a rehashing, a, a more sophisticated rehashing of the punk era, is called Nevermind. So in both of those iconic albums that will stand the test of time, that will change culture, that are basically echoes of each other in a weird way, both use the words Nevermind in the album. Why? Because they never want your mind to ascend. Never mind. Always feelings, always anger, Always love, always sex, always drugs, always, but never mind. Words have meaning. And if you want to go back and look at the record, you will see the seminal punk rock album that kicked it all off and ended up standing the test of time as Never Mind the Bullocks by the Sex Pistols, uh, late 70s, early 80s, not sure exactly when, late 70s, I would estimate. And then again, here they're going to re-echo the punk rock idea with grunge in a different way, slightly, and the seminal album will be Never Mind. You can see the game that is played if you look carefully. Now, when this album was recorded, Nirvana was, of course, not a massive and probably one of the biggest bands ever for a short time success. They weren't this massive success yet. Listening back with older and wiser ears and also 20-plus years of studio experience, I can tell you that Nevermind sounds like a major label release. It was recorded extremely well. Definitely not an indie kind of thing. The guitars, all of it, very strong, very punchy, very well mixed, balanced. Everything that you would expect from a major release album, that is what I heard when I re-listened to it the other night. Of course, you're not going to get a seminal album any other way. And when you go back and listen to the Sex Pistols albums, never mind the Bullocks, first of all, you were told only one guy could play his instrument, a guitarist, all right? Go back and listen to that. You're being told these are punk rockers who couldn't play their instruments, they're like a garage band, but you can absolutely detect the very same thing Jason just said. This is studio level production, and as a musician, both Jason and I are, we both play guitar, one of the most difficult things to do as a guitarist is to play simple licks that have impact upon hearing, but then stay alive through the test of time. And both of these albums, you can say the same things about both. They're actually very cleverly studio-produced albums. And in the case of the Sex Pistols, I mean, you had a guy singing, uh, kind of, more screaming than singing, and then one member of that band supposedly could play his instrument. And yet that album still holds up till today. The best tricks are the old tricks, I would submit. And I can definitely say to you folks that the Sex Pistols album has the same kind of sound. That's right. Of course, it's a little bit older sounding just because it was done in the 70s on not quite as efficient tape decks. But generally speaking, that album was very well recorded, very well mixed, and it does hold up to today, especially because they remaster these things and actually pull more sonic frequencies out of it to release to the digital markets today than would have been available in the 70s. And the same thing with Nirvana in the 90s, again, everything would have been going to 2-inch tape and then bounced down to 2-track, two 2-track two stereo. 
Yeah, not only does it hold up, we have some of the biggest hair bands of the 80s, like uh, what's the Tommy Lee band there, Jason? Motley Crue. Motley Crue redoes the Sex Pistols Anarchy in the UK, of course, uh, later bragging that they bought Johnny Rotten or Johnny Lydon a new house with their covering of that song that they did. But, you know, here's the demonstration. What's true here? Are these little punks that couldn't play their instruments that just got a a garage recording? Um, Johnny Rotten is knifed and thrown out of the country or some nonsense was the story back in the day because of writing the song God Save the Queen. Who, Who dares talk about the Queen in that way? Well, here's the thing. I fell for punk rock in the late 70s. I was even in a punk rock band. But by the time grunge come around, already seen that and done that. Never got why it was so popular. Don't get it now. Um, But that's because I was there for the first time this trick was employed. And it's interesting to think of it like this because punk was supposedly in response to the whole dance and glam and all of what was going on in the 70s that these angrier young men were protesting against. So they were doing this stripped-down, real-in-your-face kind of music. And then the grunge alternative rock scene is kind of supposed to be doing the same thing, isn't it? After the plasticky, regurgitated nonsense that a lot of these 80s hair bands were, because even though most of them were phenomenal players, the music was pretty blasé. It was repetitive, and they all sounded a lot alike, to be perfectly honest. And and if you look back, it's true. The, The record labels, after they got this style into play they just kept rehashing it over and over and over again and cashing in as much as they could and not to say i don't like some of the music from the 80s but that's just the reality of it and then of course in the early 90s we have a very similar thing happening all over again nirvana is very punk like and it's very stripped down and it's very in your face in stark contrast to the glitz and glam and plasticky fakeness of the 80s hair rock Not only that, it's going to use the same word, never mind, in the seminal album from Grunge that the seminal album in Punk used, the Sex Pistol, never mind the Bullocks. These things are not arguable in my point. One of the things about the punk rock movement was, well, we've been through the 60s and 70s, and the 20-minute guitar solo is just self-aggrandization. And look at these guys. They've got 12 tractor trailers moving their equipment from gig to gig. You know, this this big self-aggrandizing glam self-important that that's over um but the thing about punk was when you first went out to where the punk bands were playing for the first time there were no seats in the place um everyone was it wasn't called a mosh pit back then but that's the first time it happened and we used to go out in san diego to these places and see these bands and it was totally geared towards the young anxious young man wasn't it you know everyone swung around in there bumping into each other listening to this very aggressive music um Like I said, I was there for the first time this trick got put into play, and I was not about it by the time grunge came along. And speaking of grunge, grunge brought in a look and feel that was completely different from the previous decade. The 1990s was the time of what I like to call burden rock, where the biggest bands spent most of their time writing and putting out songs about life's problems and how terrible things are, and definitely not looking like they were having a good time doing it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't being a rock star supposed to be pretty awesome? Well, that's Kurt Cobain's whole story. You know, everything you see on him is, oh, he couldn't, he didn't want to be famous. He didn't want to sell out. He didn't. Sorry, Kurt, you got a band with the seminal album with Nevermind in the title, just like Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols did. We see through the illusion, just like we see through the illusion of the shotgun in the mouth. Please spare me uh, the 27 Club. We've covered it enough here on this show to, to understand what's going on there. And, you know, I, I don't know what else to say, Jason. The old tricks are the best tricks, and that's what grunge is. It's an old trick. 
I remember even thinking way back then, his whole shtick just annoyed me. It's like, if you don't want to be a rock star, then don't be a rock star. But don't whine about being a rock star while you're continuing to be a rock star. Your photo is everywhere. Your album is everywhere. Right, right. Just all that. It's, it's ridiculous, man. If you don't want to do it, cash those checks and go somewhere else. Go back to Seattle and enjoy the coffee. Well, look at all the coverage of some of the Kurt Cobain stuff where they're they're saying this guy was the biggest genius that ever lived. Talent, so much talent, you couldn't fit it in one human body for crying out loud. Listen to how his voice cracks right there and just the agony coming out of him because we all know he killed himself, right? You remember? You remember everybody? He kills himself later. So you can hear in this song where that agony is pouring out. Let me Let me reframe everyone's mind here. There was a time when music was written for orchestras. Basically, there are 12 classes of instrument. Hint, hint, hint. That relates exactly to the natural world. Your woodwinds, your timpani, your violins, your strings, your, you know, everyone knows how an orchestra is put together. Human beings used to write 30-minute, hour-long, orchestrated things for 12 different classes, categories of instruments. And if you were to take Nirvana's sheet music and put it next to Beethoven's Fifth, you better understand what you're being convinced is awesome is child's play. We have reversed a course from where human beings could produce sonic incredibleness, to make up bad words, at an orchestrated level back in the 1800s, back in the 1700s, back in the 1600s, if we had such time, down to grunge. And now they're trying to convince us that this is the greatest stuff that ever came out of a can. And I'm here to tell you it's not. It's low-minded. And we've got a comparison. If you want to simply grab any classical music ever written and stack the sheet music side by side or look at something like Bach or Brahms where you're looking at four lines of music, a human being reading four lines of music playing one line with one hand, one line with the other hand, and then another line with each foot on a pipe organ. You want to talk about higher-minded? That's higher-minded. So I'm just saying, you can see the overarching programming nature of where we have come here. To show just how powerful social engineering is, it is astounding how within a year, and I literally mean a year, everyone went from wearing the colorful and somewhat stylish clothes of the 1980s to wearing worn flannel, old t-shirts, torn jeans, and Doc Martens boots. Looking good was a huge issue in 1980s culture, and I really remember that. The girls were always trying to outdo each other, especially. But looking like you just rolled out of bed and went to the gig in the clothes you slept in from yesterday was grunge. For excellent examples, see Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains. You know what always strikes me about fashion and the idea that you're broaching here is why is it tied to decades? You know, it makes no sense. It shows the, the kind of programming nature of what it is. And for that matter, why does the fashion of the 60s always loop around 30 years later and get rehashed again? Well, from my point of view, this has to do with programming because a system which has a lot of diversity and variety is not really that programmable. But when you limit a system and reduce the variety, then it becomes very programmable. So why is it that we can actually demonstrate that in the 70s, this is the look, at the end, we're into the disco era, which by the way, for the whole disco story, some guy, some DJ in Chicago decides at a ball game, he's going to say disco sucks and they're going to blow up and smash and burn all these disco albums. And they're supposedly that's going to kill disco. Let me tell you something. Disco never went anywhere. If you understand music, you will understand that disco traveled into the future under a different name. But to get back to the point, 
is how is it that as the 80s start, we get into this whole flamboyant, uh, you know, the Jane Fonda workout. Everyone needs to look good. The clothes are going to be bright, super bright, uh, shoulder pads, all these things. And then, boom, as soon as we hit the 90s, the exact opposite is true. Now nobody's working out. Matter of fact, we don't even wash our clothes. Matter of fact, if there's more holes in my jeans, the better. And by the way, there is no higher, <laughs> higher dress up than flannel shirts at this point and you can tie it exactly to the division of decades and it goes to show the nature of what we're looking at here in my view now there was another kind of music that also took a massive hold in the 1990s and that is gangster rap while rap itself had been around for decades before predominantly being said to have been taking on something along the lines of its modern sound since the 1970s the gangster rap movement was another social engineering nightmare that absolutely decimated the majority of what was left of Western black culture. And this was after decades of drugs and drug dealing were being pumped into the black neighborhoods. You know, this one, looking back on it, Jason, is the most in-your-face decimation of portions of society that I think I can remember in my lifetime. We've done the 60s. We've shown how the drug culture, the subculture of the 60s did so much damage. But in a way, it was driven by the people wanting to do it. When we get to gangster rap here, it is so damn in-your-face, so violent, and then, of course, it's going to be intricately tied to a brand new drug. You know, in the 80s, it was all about cocaine. And by the way, cocaine wasn't addictive in the 80s. Not until you get into the 90s and they start making crack. And by the way, yeah, cocaine's very addictive. And by the way, this new version, crack, which some genius somewhere had enough chemistry ability to make, ha ha ha, uh, is one of the most addictive things ever. This is all going to come to bear in Southern California all at the same time. And Jason, you're going to do a pretty good job. I've been through the bullet points of tying all the things going on around. And this is lock, stock, and barrel what the 90s seem to have been. It's the capstone, man. It's the bottom of the pit from which we're not going to climb out. At least we haven't yet. What I'm going to go over next is the mainstream history on what was known as the Iran-Contra affair. Around August of 1985, the United States government, under President Ronald Reagan, illegally began to sell weapons to Iran, who was at war with Iraq at the time, under the control, of course, of CIA asset Saddam Hussein. The substantial amount of money made from the weapons deals was in the tens of millions of dollars. This large chunk of cash was then secretly funneled to what were known as Contra rebels in the Central American country of Nicaragua. These rebels were fighting to topple the Sandinista regime that was in control of that country at the time. American support to the Nicaraguan Contra rebels was in violation of what is known as the Boland Amendment. The Boland Amendment is a term describing three U.S. legislative amendments between 1982 and 1984, all three of which were aimed at limiting the United States government from assisting the Contras in Nicaragua. Despite the legalities, officials working with the National Security Council as well as the Central Intelligence Agency had direct knowledge of what was going on in these matters. After the whole affair was exposed in 1986, several investigations ensued, including by the U.S. Congress and the three-person Reagan-appointed Tower Commission. Neither found any evidence that President Reagan himself knew of the extent of any of it. In the end, the sale of weapons to Iran was not deemed a criminal offense, but charges were brought against five individuals for their support of the Contras. 
These charges would later be dropped because the administration refused to declassify certain documents. The indicted conspirators faced lesser charges of various natures instead. Once all was said and done, 14 administration officials were indicted, including then-Secretary of Defense Kasper Weinberger. Eleven convictions resulted, some of which were vacated on appeal. The rest of those indicted or convicted were all pardoned in the final days of the presidency of George H.W. Bush, who had been vice president at the time of the affair. (laughs) (laughs) This is better than Saturday morning cartoons in the 70s, man. Um, And then there's Oliver North, right? He's one of the guys who they trot out to be the scapegoat, you know, the fall guy. And I forget, you know, he goes to jail or he gets busted. He takes a big part of the rap. But where can you find him now? Well, he's on Fox News, right? And on TV. Um, It's a clown show, Jason. But I got to ask. So here they are supposedly selling weapons. You know, we know what what the outcome of the whole Iraq thing is. They end up going in there with military force, don't they? Um, But here they are down in South America. Is there any reason that we should equate the Contra affair with cocaine? Is there any connection there? No, none at all. No. So, of course, why did I bring all of that up? Because there is a direct connection with all of these events that resulted in what became the crack cocaine epidemic in the United States. It is a known fact that private airplanes used to ferry supplies to the Contra rebels that were also being used to ship cocaine back into the United States, which raised millions of dollars more in illegal funds. And these funds are said to have also been used to help the Contra rebels. The cocaine shipments, however, were distributed to black inner-city drug lords on both coasts of the United States, East Coast and West Coast. Keep that in mind, folks. Creating an insane culture of guns and drugs and turning the streets of the targeted neighborhoods into virtual war zones. And these war zones needed an accompanying soundtrack to make it appealing to the youth and perpetuate the entire situation, which it did. It still lasts till today couple things, man. I was there. There were actually times during this period before the kind of riots broke out that everyone's so familiar with. Uh, when you drove up in L.A., there was one time in the middle of the night we had to get off and look for gas, and we ended up in one of these neighborhoods, and it was no damn joke, man. You could feel the tension in the air. You could feel that you were in danger, and you just wanted to get the hell out of there. But how far have we fell as a country? I'll, I'll tell you how far we've fallen. Um, there's a, a television show on right now about snowfall where they're basically bragging in your face that the cia invented crack cocaine shipped it into the country and then drugged the living bejesus out of these lower income portions of our society destroying family units coupling it with gangster rap music how does that happen how does a society come to a point where they turn on their tv and are entertained by the admitted decimation of portions of its human beings. I would just ask, could this have happened in the 50s or the 40s? I would dare say it could not have. And if anything like this aired in those times, there would have been hell to pay. And yet here we are. Um, Now we're going to turn the decimation of American populations into entertainment. And we're even going to name it Snowfall because we have to give you the poke in the eye where we admit that cocaine was all, all them, all CIA. There it is, man. So let's talk about Death Row Records, which formerly was Future Shock Entertainment and The Row Records. This was an American record label founded in 1991 by Suge Knight, The D.O.C., Ewan Ward Thomas, and Dr. Dre. 
The label became a sensation by releasing multi-platinum hip-hop albums by West Coast-based artists such as Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, The Dog Pound, Tupac Shakur, and many others, actually, during the 1990s. At its peak, Death Row Records was making over $100 million a year. By the late 90s, the label began to decline after the shooting death of its star artist, Tupac Shakur, the imprisonment of co-founder Suge Knight, and the departure of popular act Snoop Dogg, who, I might add, has done a killer job of staying in the limelight to this day. Although Death Row was enjoying financial success, it was embroiled in controversies, lawsuits, and violence by its artists and associates. The company filed for bankruptcy in 2006 and was auctioned to Wide Awake Entertainment Group for $18 million on January 15, 2009. And there is so much to go through here uh, in conjunction with the idea of Death Row Records and what it is actually doing uh, to the African African American and lower income black areas of Compton and other places in LA which become the epicenter but if you take this out step back a few hundred yards and take a good view I got news for the who rock and roll died the who um, and guess what replaced it this replaced it not at the time people couldn't see it coming but now rap is the mainstream thing and uh this is what has happened but you know i I wonder as i read this where did dr dre get his doctorate but to quit making jokes here we get albums like the chronic which begin to mainstream the idea of using drugs which of course are going to lead up to where we are now uh where they're legalizing it all won't be long before that's all genetically altered of course you can legally smoke genetically altered things but look at these hardcore gangsters like snoop dogg Right? I guess he wanted to be Snoop Lion at one point, but his white overlords kept him a dog. Because Snoop Lion didn't stick, he's still Snoop Dog. And by the way, he runs Joker's Wild now, where he makes nothing but 420 and pot jokes all day long, clearly being wasted on the air the whole time. You can see what this was all about, and if you want to scrutinize Tupac or any other angle of this, all the world's a damn stage here. Um, But this mattered man. It didn't seem like it was going to at the time. It seemed like it was something less than what it was become. It seemed like it was centralized to certain communities. But guess what, man? It spread like a virus. And the place that spread it like a virus is going to be next on the hit list. It was Interscope Records that picked all this stuff up. And as we get into Interscope, who are picking up this kind of gangster-based rap, which is openly violent, which has narrated this whole East versus West thing, which is fake killing all kinds of famous people to further their little takeover of the human mind, um, the mainstream record companies are going to embrace this. Meanwhile, the government's going to start saying, what the hell, man, this gangster rap stuff is unacceptable. But at the top of the pyramid, Time Warner. Time frickin' Warner is going to be back in the record company called Interscope that actually mainstreams all this, and that'll be next up on the hit list. And not only did they get the black culture, they got a lot of the rest of them, too, because so much of the youth, as the years progress, latched onto this thug life nonsense and incorporated it and pretty much destroyed their lives. Well, it goes across Hispanic, it goes across white, it goes across all the younger generation by the time we're getting up into the MP3, uh, replacing all other forms of music kind of thing here. But, you know, I recently, during the research for this, saw Dr. Dre interviewed where he said, you know, I'm giving all these millions of dollars to UC system to put in this entertainment 
component to the university. Then they go back to Compton, I think it was, and they do the same thing there. They rebuild Compton School because they want to give back to the community they destroyed. But there's a big entertainment component to that that school, which I wouldn't have a problem with if it was kids as they ever were playing uh, in orchestras and learning something about music. But you can see where this entertainment thing is headed. But my point is, at the end of that interview, when he's saying all these million dollars he's given back, uh, he says, you know, in some small way, I feel like I might have been partly responsible for what happened to Compton. And my frickin' mouth fell open and my jaw bounced across the floor. It's like, no, dude. Not responsible, so eyeball deep in what happened to that community that you can't wash it off with frickin' scrub brush. Um, I would point out, Mr. Dr. Dre, you should be damn ashamed to what you did to your own people and by proxy all other peoples who adopted this, like Jason said, this idea of a thug lifestyle, ridiculousness, low-minded ridiculousness. Let's introduce James Iovine for Hour 1 and then the rest we'll get into with Interscope Records in Hour 2. James Iovine, born on March 11, 1953, he's an American record producer, best known as the co-founder of Interscope Records. In 2006, Iovine and rapper-producer Dr. Dre founded Beats Electronics, which produces audio products, and operated a now-defunct music stream service. The company was purchased by Apple Incorporated for $3 billion in May of 2014. Prior to the Apple acquisition of Beats in 2014, Iovine became chairman of Interscope Geffen A&M, an umbrella unit merged by the then-newly-reincarnated Universal Music Group in 1999. Let's party like it's 1999, Jason. We're going to get into a hell of a tale here in the second hour, but let's suffice it to say, does anyone out there remember Beats Electronics as a streaming service that mattered? I mean, I think everyone's familiar with the the earphones that they put out, uh, basically because they knew so many famous ball players and musicians, they could get the, the headphones imaged on famous people everywhere. And by the way, uh, from what I understand, those are not even the, that good of headphones, but the streaming service, think about it, was was bought by Apple Records in 2006 for three freaking billion, and actually it's three billion plus uh, in May of 2014. Uh, you can see what's going on here: the consolidation. You see, Apple will be the be-all and end-all, or one of them. Um, right now, I believe Apple is listed as the most valuable corporation in the world, and so handing out three billion, I guess, is like throwing some candy corns across the table at this point. But I will say again: Does anyone remember the Beat streaming services? Anything? important or anywhere near worth an astronomical price tag of three point i think it was four billion or something like that but jason we're right here at the top of the hour when we come back we're going to start to take apart what all this means and as he mentioned here uh we have james i, I call him ivy i guess it's iovine um, and dr dre forming interscope Words have meaning. We'll talk about the definition of the word interscope and Geffen Records. For those who remembered our 60s work, Geffen was at the apex of that. So now Geffen has apparently migrated up to be above all this while people like James and Dr. Dre are down in the trenches pushing the program. Anyhow, this will bring episode 123, hour one, to a close. At the posting of this episode, there will be 123 free hours of content at crow777radio.com. You do not need a login. Uh, I hope you'll join us over at the Free Speech Zone. We try to speak as evenly and as honestly as we can in the first hour, but everybody knows what's going on with censorship, which means so much of the things that matter are always pushed into the second hour. Um, there it is, man. Hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com. Cheers.